Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Friday, September the 16th, 2022. It is currently 7.49 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Oh, I so hate when I mess up the introduction. I really do. I really do. So I know what you're going to say. You should just move on, not even acknowledge it, but I'm going to acknowledge it and I'm going to do it again. Welcome, everyone. Good evening, everyone. It is Friday, September the 16th, 2022. It is currently 7.49 p.m. Central Time, and I'm still coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. It It's amazing if I make one little mistake in the introduction, then for like the first five or 10 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes into what I'm talking about, I'll still be remembering the mistake I made in the introduction, which then typically leads me to make more mistakes because I'm not thinking about what I'm getting ready to say. I'm thinking about what I've already said. Oh, Yeah. I know, I know. The the dark, twisted brain of your host of the Theology Central podcast. I know, it's 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 crazy. But I say all of that to say, welcome, everyone. It's Friday night, and are you ready for a little Friday night Bible study exercise? I hope you are. I have my Bible open to the book of Amos, which we have now been studying. This is what, part 15, part 16 in our study of the book of Amos. I've given you homework. I've given you assignments. Remember, we're using the most comprehensive book Bible study method that we could come up with to study the book of Amos. We've done a book background method. We've done a book survey. We're working on the chapter analysis, and then we'll end with book synthesis. We're doing so many different things. I hope that you have benefited from it. Please remember, you have curriculum available to you to supplement what you're working on. So um, just whatever you need, let me know. We're here to help you actually get into studying the Bible for yourself. So what we are doing right now is we're kind of doing a little bit of impromptu chapter analysis, all right? We're utilizing uh, the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee. One, uh, they gave us permission to use their material any way we want. Uh, and two, it just is a, a he kind of walks through it. So it just kind of makes it a, a, a you know, a, an easy thing to use as I'm interrupting it and offering my own thoughts and giving you homework and giving you assignments and using it to to raise questions and then giving you those questions to work on to see if we can come up with answers, all the different things that we've tried to do. Uh, so, so and just Jay Vernon McGee, I mean, that's a cla- I mean, and it's in a hit sense of like. The history of Christian radio, when it comes to Bible teachers, I mean, J. Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee's Through the Bible radio program, pretty historic. If anyone spent any time on Christian radio stations that did, that played a lot of preaching and teaching, his program was, I mean, it was unique because he was just going through the Bible every five years. So just, just be bringing that back a little bit, I think is interesting as well. And again, we're always, we're always trying different things for the Bible study exercises to make each study its own unique thing. And hopefully this is adding to it. Now, I'm not going to do a lot of review. We've covered all of chapter one. We used Dr. J. Vernon McGee to raise some serious questions about, wait, when were these judgment upon the nations fulfilled? And remember, chapter one is all about judgments upon the nations. And I want you, I wanted you to look at each judgment. I want you to summarize simply 
What are they being judged for? Right? So that we really understand what they're being judged for. When did these judgments occur? And do we have a biblical reference to the judgments? All right. So we, we talked about that. We worked in chapter one, gave you some assignments there. And then we made it to chapter two. And after, and again, remember, there's this reverse order in Amos. Most of the prophets begin with Israel, judgment upon Israel, then moves to the other nations. Here it begins with judgment upon the nations, then moves to Israel. Why do you think there's anything significant in that rever- that order reversal? I, I, I don't know if I've seen, I don't know. I'll, I've, I've had a lot of people send me their notes and their homework. And so sometimes I have to go back and look at it going, wait a minute, who said what? But if you haven't addressed that issue, I still want to know your theory your hypothesis to why do you think Amos reverses the order? Is there any significance to it? Everyone points it out, but no one seems to tell me why it is significant. But we have reached Amos chapter 2, verse 4. We're using, again, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, and we've made it to judgment on Judah. So it's going to be judgment on Judah. Then starting in Amos chapter 2, verse 6, we begin judgment on Israel. All right. So, I, there's a lot of review we could do, but we're just going to jump back to Dr. J. Vernon McGee. As he works through this, I'll be interrupting, asking questions. I'll be offering analysis, critique. I, I may give you homework. I don't, but remember, we're listening to this in real time. Remember, I, I do this like I do with all my reviews. But this is not really a review. I'm using this kind of as a sounding board to uh, supplement what we're doing, but I, I haven't listened to it first because I, I don't like this to come across as a production, but this is just organic. When, when I listen to a sermon, I play it for you, and we listen to it together. And when I, I, you know, it's Friday night. Oh, trust me, there's lots of entertainment things I want to be involved in right now. But I thought, you know what? Let's go upstairs, and I'll spend a little time working on the book of Amos, and I'll invite people from around the world to join us. So have your Bibles open. Amos chapter 2, verse 4, the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Let's see where he takes us in this study on the book of Amos, and hopefully this will continue to add to what we've been working on. If you've missed everything in the series, please, you want to go all the way, you want to download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, you want to look for the Bible Study Exercise Series, and you want to go back to the uh, episodes, and in fact, I'll, I'll pull up the Church One app right here just so that you know what you need to look for. If you want to go back and catch up on everything, you'll you'll go to sermons and then you'll click on series. You'll look for Bible study exercise and you'll want to go back to the best Bible study method, part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, part six. You'll want to learn all of those methods. Then you'll want to start Amos chapter one because we're using that, that method that I ta- taught, which is four methods. We're using that Bible study method to study the book of Amos. You're like, but I'm way behind. Don't worry about it. Learn the method. Use the book of Amos in using that Bible study method because uh, then whatever we do in the future, you'll be ready to use. Well, you'll have more tools to use in your Bible study toolkit. All right. Does that make sense? I hope so. Here we go. Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Um, just remember, when you download the Church One app, you'll have to search for Theology Central. Church One app is kind of a generic app used by a number of broadcasters. You type in Theology Central, choose us as your broadcaster of choice, it turns it into the Theology Central app. So please download 
the Church One app. I keep pointing people to that app. I know a lot of people use the other podcasting apps, which is wonderful, but it's not organized, right? On the Church One app, everything is broken down into individual series. So it just makes it so easy for you to find what you're looking for. So uh, we hope that you utilize it. Even if you don't use it to listen, you can at least find the name so that you can go search for it on the other podcasting app. And the Church One app is the best at notifying you when we're going live on the air. All right, so enough for that commercial. Here we go, the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee. And again, we are grateful to Through the Bible Ministries who allowed us to do this. We're very grateful. And uh, well, let's, let's jump in. Here we go. Now he's going to deal actually with the Mosaic Law. He's not dealing here with the commandments as he did with Judah, but He's dealing with these commandments that have to do with a man's everyday life. Now, first of all, he says, "...because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes." And remember, one of the things I wanted you to do is to, uh, just, just to remind you of your homework, is here when he starts pronouncing his judgment and, and what Judah had done wrong, he talks about how they have treated the poor. And I wanted you to go through everything in Amos and find everything in Amos where the poor are mentioned. And I wanted you to see the emphasis of judgment upon Israel and Judah for how they treated the poor. And then ask yourself, is that same emphasis on how we treat the poor found in most evangelical churches? Now, the interesting thing is that a great deal is said here about the poor. The ten tribes in the north now, they had the law, but they were committing the sins of the nations that were round about them. Fact of the matter is... Now that is such... See, sometimes in these studies, one little phrase really just captures my imagination. But I love this. When you, when you see what Judah and Israel is doing wrong and what they're being condemned for... They're acting, even though they got, they, even though they have God's law, even though they've, they've seen miracles, even though they have priests, even though they, they even with everything they have, they're, they're in their sense God's chosen people. They continue to live and act and commit the same sins the world is committing. And the same thing has been true in 2000 years of church history, but the evangelical world constantly wants to act like, no, 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 no. We're the godly ones. They're the ungodly ones. But God's people constantly commit the same sin as the ungodly. We may, we may dress it up. We may make it look a little better, but we were just as guilty. And right here in Amos, the people of God are committing the same sins as the people around them because the people of God and the people Un, the ungodly, we all have a sinful nature. So it's just interesting. Well, we'll, we'll at some point we may talk more about that, but let, let's continue. We'll see that the very people that God put out of that land, why they were committing the same sins. Now, first of all, you have here the mistreatment of the poor. And you'll find out that he has a great deal to say about the poor. If you turn over to the fourth chapter, verse 1, Hear the word, ye cows of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. And then again in chapter 5 and verse 11, and will you listen to this? 
for as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor. Now, I've called attention to this time and again in the prophets, that the poor are not going to get justice, nor will they be treated fair on this earth until Christ reigns. The only hope of the poor is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry to say that, but we are told today that certain political parties will take care of the poor. Well, they've been taking care of us, all right, friends. Every time another one comes along and tells how much he's going to help me, I listen to him, and then my taxes go up. And they've been going up and up and up. And I'll be very frank with you. I find out that most of these men are rich men. We have too many rich men, not just lawyers today in Congress. We have too many millionaires there. And they don't know my problem. They don't understand me. They don't understand the poor. And I'm thankful as one someday that's going to take over for the poor. Now, this, I, I know this gets controversial. I know this gets controversial because if you're not careful, if you're not careful, people will accuse you of preaching a social, a social gospel. Um, but I, I, I just, inter- I just, I'm just curious if and and. You, we could do this. I, I want you to find all the places where the poor are mentioned in Amos, but it would be interesting if we go from, say, Genesis to Revelation and, and, and found a complete, we, we created a complete biblical picture. We would have to use like the thematic or the topical study. And we find every reference in the Bible to the poor. And look at the emphasis, look at the condemnation of when people mistreat the poor and, and the call to care for the poor and all the, th- and I just wonder if that same emphasis is found in the evangelical world today. It's almost like if you talk about the poor caring for the poor, you're immediately, that's a, so, that's a social gospel. That's a social gospel. That's liberalism. That's, and it's like, wait a minute. How, how do we reconcile? What appears to be the lack of concern for the poor, maybe in the minds of many evangelical churches, versus the biblical emphasis on the poor. Do you think there is, do you think there's a contra, I'll put it say, do you think there's a disagreement between the biblical emphasis versus the emphasis on the poor in the evangelical world. I'm not saying that there's a simple fix, but it's really interesting. It's like all of these, like many Christians, they have this mentality. Well, first of all, it's not, you know, you're, you're, the poor is always going to be with you. It's it's their problem. If a man doesn't work, they don't eat. Like these kinds of, they throw out a couple of Bible verses, all right? Boom, it's not our problem. And then, wait a minute, we shouldn't have all these social programs, welfare and all of this. No, 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 no. It just causes these people to be lazy. I shouldn't be paying to help them. They should They should get up and work. They can go find a job. And it's like, I hear Christians say a lot of things, and I'm like, is that the language of Scripture when it comes to the poor? I'm just putting forth the, the thought and the hypothesis because it's just interesting that, right, I mean, 
Right out of the gate, uh, Amos chapter 2, verse 4, when, once it gets to God's people, we read this, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away thy pun- the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after which their fathers have walked. But I will send fire upon Judah. So we have the judgment against Judah. Then right to, to verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. All right. Now, I guess technically he was more starting with 2.6 than 2.4. I think I said 2.4, but you, we, you know where we are. Judah was first, and then now we move to Israel. But immediately they go out. When it gets to Israel, he immediately goes after their treatment of the poor. And then you can look at everything that was said about the poor. Do we have the right? I, I just think that this is a, a, a time to challenge us. I know we need to we need to stay trying to just work through a verse by verse, but, but I, I at least want to set this aside as a subject that we can't ignore, right? That we have to return to it. Do we have the right? Do we have the right biblical perspective on the poor or have we been so influenced by the mind of the conservative world when it comes to the poor? God will judge a nation for its mistreatment of the poor. Now, somebody says, well, was there any law on this? There certainly was. Let me read you just one, and I could give several. In verse 19 of chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16:19. listen to this. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. Neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. God put this law to protect the poor. In that day, a man might be absolutely innocent, but his adversary would slip something under the table to the judge. And by the way, that practice doesn't seem to be out of style today. Styles change, but not this one. That thing is still done. And it's difficult today for the poor, you see, to get justice when money today seems to be the determining factor. May I say to you, this man is speaking to a very pertinent problem of his day. And even a pair of shoes would pervert judgment and cause the poor to have to suffer. Then, not only that, by the way, But I come down here to verse 7, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. And what does that mean? Well, it could mean several things. Personally, I think it means that these selfish, these greedy judges and rich even resented that the poor had enough dust left to throw on their head in mourning. Believe me, that is the modern idolatry also. That is covetousness today. And we see a great deal of that about. And God judges nations for that, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. I just think this is interesting because you'll hear preachers say, if 
if God doesn't judge America for its homosexuality and LGBTQ, then he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. If God doesn't judge America for the slaughter of the unborn, then, you know, and then, you know, he owes an apology to everyone. Whatever the case may be, preachers were calling, judgment's going to come upon America because homosexuality, judgment's going to come upon America because of abortion. But do, do we ever hear judgment could come upon a nation for how it treats the poor? But anytime a political party wants to help the poor, it's immediately like, why should we be paying for people for this? And why should we? And I just, I just, and, and again, what the world says, I don't care. It's what Christians say. Do we have a biblical perspective on the poor? That I think, I think every church needs to be challenged on that. We don't need to develop our philosophy about the poor from, you know, well, Rush Limbaugh's no longer with us, but Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, Fox News, or, or, or Democrats or anybody else. It should be from the word of God. I, I would be curious if you went to your church and you just did a random poll of people, what does the Bible have to say about the poor? I wonder how many would simply say the poor will always be with you. And if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And that's all, that's all they know about what the Bible says about the poor. That's all they know. That's all they know. If I was to ask you to take a piece of paper and write down seven key points in regards that uh, seven key po- uh, points or seven key things the Bible teaches in regards to the poor, how many could you fill out all seven without looking up, without looking anything up? How familiar you are, a fil- familiar are you with the biblical teaching on how the poor should be treated? I, I think it's a, I think it's a, I'm glad, I mean, I mean, the text brings this up, but I'm glad J. Vernon McGee is emphasizing this because I think this is a place, this is one of those things where you're kind of going verse by verse and you're like, that's maybe something we need to look into. Maybe. I, I, I'm going to continue to emphasize this currently. All right, let's continue. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And apparently he's talking about a maid that's a prostitute. And both the father and the son went in to them. And God says that adultery profanes his holy name. May I say to you, the new morality today wasn't new at all. Israel was practicing the new morality. But God said that he hated it and he had put down laws specifically concerning this type of thing. And they were breaking over these you can see this preacher's not going to be popular, friends. Amos was not really a very popular preacher in his day. He took the side of the poor, and he condemned unrighteousness. He condemned the injustice. He condemned the fact that the poor were getting a bad deal, and he condemned immorality. Not only that, listen to him. He's not through. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And did you know that God had a very lovely law in that particular connection? I think I have time to turn and read that. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 12, listen to this. And if the man be poor 
thou shalt not sleep with his pledge. In any case, thou shalt deliver him the pledge again when the sun goeth down, that he may sleep in his own raiment, and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God. Now, a man very poor, he had nothing to put up, you know, for a very small loan as collateral, except his outer garment. And that's what he needed to keep him warm. God says, you can take it, but when the sun goes down, you let him have it back in order that he might not be cold and sleeping that night. Now, God says, you've been breaking over at that point. You have disobeyed me. And as a result, he says, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. And this is by every altar. I should mention that, which means there was only one altar that God had established in Jerusalem in the temple. This speaks of they had turned to idolatry, and now he's condemning drunkenness. Now, we're coming back to drunkenness again, and I'll not enlarge on that today at all. Well, we'll see that next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, I want to come to our... Now, that that gap right there is where they would edit for the radio program, but we have just the files without all of the radio intro and outro. So that's why you're like, okay, so are we done? No, we're going we're gonna to try to go from verse 9 to uh, 16. We're going to try to finish chapter 2 this evening is what we're going to try to finish. But it's just, once again, interesting that even that they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar still seems to have something to do with how to treat the poor. So... Um, You'll definitely, when you're going verse by verse, you'll want to understand all of these things that, as it relates to sins against the poor. I, I think we, we cannot overlook this. I studied today, and I'd gotten down to the ninth verse of the second chapter of Amos, and he's now speaking directly to the congregation that's out in front of him. He did speak about the sins of the Moabites. But now he's going to talk about the sins of the Israelites. And they are the ones that are listening to him there. And he's not making himself very popular because he mentions the specific sins of which they are guilty. And those were the sins of immorality, injustice, and blasphemy. And he spells them out for them. They were mistreating the poor. God notes that. There's so much in the Word of God concerning that. The Lord Jesus could rejoice that the poor had the gospel preached to them. And he speaks of the fact that they couldn't get justice before the judges of that day because the judges were accepting a bribe from the rich one in the case that was probably suing them. And naturally, the poor were not getting justice. And he mentions the fact that justice was being turned aside in disfavor to the meek of the earth. The meek were in disfavor. Why? Because they didn't speak out. The fact of the matter is, the old saying is true, that it's the squeaking wheel that gets the grease. And the meek are not inheriting the earth today. It's the forward and those that are grabbing all they can. And therefore, God is 
saying he'll judge them because of the fact that they are not giving justice to the poor and to the meek. He condemns them for their immorality, for adultery. He condemns them for the fact of idolatry because they were taking pledges by every altar. And that means that Israel had only one altar, and it was in Jerusalem. Now they were in idolatry, and they were breaking the Mosaic law because God says you can't take a man's coat as a pledge. You can't use it as collateral because you're taking away that garment which keeps him warm. And we talk about how just our laws are today. And it's permitted today to absolutely move an entire family out of a house when they cannot pay the rent because of poverty, by the way. And the Word of God has a great deal to say in behalf of the poor. Then he condemns drunkenness here. Now, he's coming back to that And I have something more to say when we get to that, because that is the great sin of our nation today. Now, in verse 9, God says, "...yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath." God likens the Amorite here using now the language of this man, this country bumpkin that's come up from Tekoa, way down yonder in the desert in Judah. And it is figurative and expressive language that he is using here. He's tall like the cedar. He's strong like the oak. But God said, I destroyed him. I destroyed the fruit above. I destroyed the roots from beneath. Now, God got rid of the Amorite. That's exactly what we have in the book of Joshua. In the 24th chapter of Joshua, verse 8, he says, "...and I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, that ye might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you." Now, we said last time there are no Moabites around today. I don't think you've seen one recently. And I wonder when the last time was that you saw an Amorite, when God put them in the land. You remember he had said way back yonder to Abraham, he said, now, I can't put you in the land right now because the Amorite is in the land and his iniquity is not yet full. That is, God says, I'm going to give him an opportunity to turn to me, to turn from these gross sins that he was committing, and I am going to give him an opportunity. Now, someone is going to say to me, well, Dr. McGee, after all, these heathen nations didn't have the Mosaic law, and they didn't know. There's a very interesting statement that Paul makes in Romans, the second chapter. I think probably I ought to turn and read that. He says in the second chapter of Romans, verse 12, "...for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law 
are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Well, now, why would they refrain from murder? Why would they refrain from lying? Why would they refrain from stealing? Well, listen to Paul. Now, I continue to read here. Romans 2, verse 15. "...which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another." You and I have a conscience, and if we'd never heard of the Ten Commandments, it would either accuse us or excuse us. We'd either say, I'm guilty, or we'd make some excuse for breaking it. So that the Gentiles, man has had a sense, he's been given that, of that which is right and that which is wrong. And it was on that basis that God judged the Amorites. He continued in sin, and God says, I'm going to put you down in Egypt. Told Abraham that, that is his offspring, for 420 years. Now, friends, I don't think the most rabid liberal would want to ask God to give more than 420 years. Now, if you feel like 421 years would have been better, then I'm sure the Lord must have made a mistake. But I personally will go along with the Lord that when you give a nation 420 years to decide what to do, that they've had a long enough time. Well, the fact of the matter is the Amorite didn't turn to God. Now, when Joshua crossed over, he came into the land of the Amorites. Jericho was an Amorite city. And this woman that was there, the harlot Rahab, he was an Amorite. These people were destroyed. Now, the Moabites disappeared, but you have Ruth, the Moabitess, in the genealogy of Christ. Now, you have Rahab the harlot in the genealogy of Christ. But the Amorites have long since disappeared. Now, God says, I judge them for committing the same sins that you are committing, and I have given you my law, and you have broken it. Now, verse 10, "...also I brought you up from the land of Egypt, led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. It is not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord." Now, God says that I wanted you to serve me in that land. I wanted you to I wonder, I mean, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. They're being judged for how they treated the poor, and then it seems to come to a description of what God has done for them. I destroyed the, Amorite, the Amorites, right? Uh, now, is it I destroyed the Amorites before you, like in other words, for you and your benefit so that you would possess the land? I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and I led you 40 years and through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites? In other words, here's all the things God did for you. You were poor. You were in captivity. You were hopeless and helpless, and look at what God did for you, and then you turn around and look at how you treat the poor. Is there a, is there a contrast meant to be here, or is it a contrast 
that preachers may, or I may grab onto that I shouldn't. You can tell me what you think. Bring up your young men to serve me, to be prophets and to be Nazarites. Now, what happened? Verse 12, now, chapter 2 of Amos, "...but ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not." This was the picture that we have here. Now, a Nazarite was an Israelite who took a vow that he did voluntarily. He'd be dedicated to God. Three things that he did. First, he didn't cut his hair. Now, he was really the first hippie that there was. And why? Because for a man to have long hair, Paul says, it's a shame to him. And when I look around me today and see some of the fellows that I see, I agree with Paul that it's sort of a shame for a man to have long hair. But we've long since passed that, and it's not my business, and I don't try to tell anybody how to cut their hair. But I'm just telling you that the Nazarites let their hair grow because they were willing to bear shame. Now, the second thing, they were not permitted to drink wine or touch any fruit of the vine, not even raisins. They were not to eat grapes. Now, there are some that have tried to say the Lord Jesus was a Nazarite. He was not. They actually called him a wine bibber, and he made wine there at the feast yonder in Cain of Galilee, a wedding feast. Now, I'm going to come back, though, to this matter of drunkenness a little later on. They were breaking a vow when they gave the Nazarites wine. And then the Nazarite was not to touch a dead body or come near it. That is, when one of his loved ones died, he didn't even attend the funeral. Why? Well, because he's putting God first, and that's an evidence of it. Now they said to the prophets, prophesy not. They say to the prophets, we don't want to hear you. We don't want to have any message from you at all. They wouldn't listen to the prophets. May I make an analogy to our own nation today? I was talking to a man who has been a history professor in a college. He was telling me, that he was very much interested in the statement we made in Daniel that our nation today is following the pattern that Rome followed when Rome went down. You see, Rome was never destroyed from the outside. And I've never believed that there is coming a missile over the North Pole that will destroy this country. I think that the missile that will destroy us today is this propaganda that is abroad that we have now become a sophisticated, very progressive nation, and we're a great nation, and nothing can happen to us. We are probably going down as fast as any nation. A leading statesman says this nation has gone down faster in the past ten years than it did in its entire history from its inception. And that, of course, is true today. And one of the... I love listening to old sermons and old pastors. I mean, like, that's, this is probably from maybe the 80s, maybe the... I don't know when he recorded this. And it's just funny that, you know, this nation is going down faster than it's ever gone down. And here we are in 2022. And it's like so many times preachers are, you know, it's it, the nation's falling apart. It's going down so quick. 
We can't last much longer. And then boom. I remember in the 90s, it's over. America's done. It's finished. And then we're in the 2000s. Oh, no. And then, you know, September the 11th happened. Oh, no. America's crumbling. And then now in 2022, America's falling apart. We say it all the time. Um, you can run around being focused on all of that, or you can just focus on what we're called to do as Christians, which is to live out the Christian life and present the gospel. But all right, that, it just, I just always funny listening to old sermons and hearing some of the things they say, and you're like, okay, so, but all right. In fact, two of them, and we'll deal with both of them later. One of them, of course, is drunkenness. There happen to be 10 million alcoholics in this country today. One half of the accidents that take place in Southern California are drunk drivers involved. And we today say we shouldn't say anything about it, but we are to make laws concerning the use and abuse of drugs. And I agree with those laws. But what about liquor, friends? That's the thing today that's destroying us as a nation. And then the other thing that characterizes us today is that we're not hearing the Word of God. The liberal preacher today is... Funny how he goes from he goes from alcohol, which is mentioned in the text. Now he goes to not hearing the word of God, but he left out to treatment of the poor. Now I know he's mentioned the pre- uh, treatment of the poor before, but it looks like the two things you would want to really emphasize is in this text. It's the treatment of the poor and alcohol. If those are the two things you're going to emphasize, but he's now going to go to the liberal preacher, and we're not hearing the word of God. Are we not hearing the word of God in regards to how we treat the poor and alcohol like that? But but I guess uh, well I guess you could throw in. They told the prophets to prophesy not. So I guess you could put three things. Uh, Our treatment of the poor, um, our uh, drunkenness, and then us telling the prophets not to prophesy. In other words, not wanting to hear the word of God. So, yeah, you could bring in all three. If it brings in all three, that's okay. It's just interesting. He kind of didn't mention the poor here, but maybe he'll mention it after he talks about this one. The popular preacher. And if they're going to have anybody on TV, it will be the liberal preacher. They had a panel discussion on abortion. They had a minister there. You guessed it, he was a liberal, and I mean a liberal. They had a discussion about women's rights. They had a preacher on there. You were right again, he was a liberal. They never asked a Bible-preaching preacher today to voice anything. And we talk about religious liberty. My friend today, the voice of God is not being heard in this land, except a few of us weak fellows that are around trying to declare the Word of God. Now, that's what they were doing in Israel. They said, at least Amos says, you're giving the Nazarite wine, causing him to break his vow and turning him from God. And you're saying to the prophet, prophesy not. You say to me, don't talk like that. We want to hear something that'll butter us up, make us feel good. Now listen to him. He's not through. Verse 13, he says, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Now, there are different ways of interpreting this. In fact, I'm told different ways of translating it. And that it's the belief of some that it's rather degrading to think of God as being pressed down like a cart. Well, I don't feel that way about it. My feeling is that God is saying here, you have put me in a difficult situation. You are my people. I put you in the land. 
and I put the Amorite out. Now, here you are committing the same sins they are. Do you expect me to shut my eyes to you because you're my people? I'm being pressed down. Verse 14, Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow. And he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord." Now, there are some expositors that believe that this refers to that earthquake we'd heard about before. I don't think so. I don't think there's any reference here to an earthquake at all. What I think is just simply this, that they were a strong nation, and God kept the enemy out, and none ever advanced into their land. Now, everything is breaking down. The walls of the cities, the enemies come in. And the strong are no longer strong, and those that handle the bow. I think that probably we ought, as a nation, to do a little thinking about what has happened in our land. We were able, in two world wars, to cross the sea and to bring an end to two world wars. We became, in that, a great nation, and we were very proud. We didn't need God at all. We had the atom bomb. And then a little country called North Vietnam. We thought that we would subdue them overnight. One of the presidents in the early 60s, why, he began to send troops in. Then the next president did, and then on. And I'm not attempting to fix blame on any president, but I do say that America should have learned a lesson We did not win a victory, and we were never able to subdue the little enemy. Now, it is true that we did not want to bring the full force to bear, but it reveals the fact that we are becoming weak as a nation, and we were divided at home. Maybe somebody ought to wake up today, and instead of shutting our eyes to the condition of our land, that we ought to begin to call attention to it, that God is already beginning to bring us down as a nation as he brought his own people down. He said, you're becoming weak, and you don't seem to realize that I'm moving now, and I'm beginning to judge you. That is the message that is there. And no wonder they wanted to run Amos out of town. No wonder they didn't want to hear his message but say he's not through. Now, in chapter 3, he's going to bring all of the nation together. God's charge now is against the whole house of Israel, the twelve tribes, though they're divided. Listen to him. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O We'll stop right there because he's going into chapter 3. So I just want you to emphasize that in chapter 2, When he goes after Israel for what they have done, it is how they've treated the poor. It is, uh, that they've, that they have, well, we can call it drunkenness, but they've given the Nazarites, it's just interesting that they have, uh, given the Nazarites to wine to drink. Is, is the issue there drunkenness? 
Um, I, I'm I, okay. So if we go through this, Israel, ha- the way they've treated the poor, you could call it sexual immorality, right? Because you have it in two. Um, well, that's all, all. If we go, if we go just with Israel, not with Judah, the way they treated the poor, two six. No, say, and, and 2-7 is, is there as well. Okay, I'm, I'm, I was thinking something else. 2-7, you have sexual immorality. 2-8 really kind of goes back to the way they treated the poor. Um, and then you have them giving wine to the Nazarites. I wonder, do we, do we refer to giving wine to the Nazarites as drunkenness? It seems that that is, is that... I'll let you tell me what you think that's a, how we should apply that. And then uh, we have, uh, they told the prophets to stop prophesying. Now, I know he wants to keep applying this to America. I would, I think these are God's people. We don't apply it to America. We apply it to God's people. In the church, do we have similar situations among God's people where the way we don't treat the poor right? We don't think about the poor the right way. We, um, I, I don't know. How, how do we give wine to the Nazarites? That, that's what I'm going to have to work on. Uh, sexual immorality, of course, that's still in the church. And then we somehow don't want the prophets to prophesy. I, I think there's something to work on in all of those sins that are, we, 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 I'm just going to kind of throw it out there and that we can flesh out a little bit. We can do a little bit of work on that because I just think that that's, I think that really stands out in chapter two, specifically the sins of Israel, that they, they're very specific here, what they have done and the, the way they've treated the poor, sexual immorality, that, and I know it's easy to say drunkenness, but I don't know if it's drunkenness. They've given wine to the Nazarites to drink. Is that drunkenness or something else going on here? Has that been about them getting to break the vow that they, that they are basically don't want anyone to be committed to God, and then they tell the prophets to don't prophesy? I, I think all of that is uh, connected there. All right, I'll stop right there. You can tell me what you think. Any any of your thoughts and observations in chapter two? I'd love to get your thoughts and observations in chapter two. I know some of you are still working in chapter one, but if you've moved to chapter two, share your thoughts and observations. Please let me see them. I w- can't wait to see what you've come up with. And uh, you can email them to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, there's much more I want to say, but I'll just leave it right there. All right, thank you for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.